You're listening to The Gulf Stream, where we talk to fascinating guests that want to make the Gulf of Mexico, and moreover, the world, a more sustainable and more beautiful place. Don't worry about getting bogged down in scientific jargon or academic lecturing. On The Gulf Stream, we break down complex ideas into simple yet intriguing subjects that will help you be more informed and perhaps inspire you to create a better environment for all of us. After all, it takes people like you to make a difference in some of the toughest issues facing the earth today. Welcome to the Gulf Stream. This is David Yaskowitz, Executive Director of the Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies at Texas A&M University, Corpus Christi. In this first episode of the Gulf Stream podcast, I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Sylvia Earle, explorer, writer, and advocate for the well-being of our oceans and coasts. Sylvia and I have known each other for over a decade. We traveled together, dove together, and talked many times about her passion for conservation and the Heart Research Institute and her role in its founding and development. In this episode, she shares her earliest memories of being in the water, what drove her to want to be a scientist, and how this moment in time is critical for ensuring the health and well-being of, as Sylvia might put it, the Big Blue. Enjoy. Dr. Sylvia Earle, welcome to the inaugural podcast of Gulfstream. Thank you very much yes, for being here. I am so honored not only to be here, but to be here to be at the dive-in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> not the blast-off. With the dive-in. The dive-in. Yeah. And, you know, we have been thinking about this for a long time. It's come to fruition. We have a great crew here. And the fact that it worked out for you to be here and, and share this time with us, thank you very much for doing that. It's great to be back. So I wanted to talk a little bit about early days of, hmm. of your science that you've done and your exploration. And I wanted to maybe move into thinking about how you connected with HRI. Mm -hmm. And then talk, talk a little bit about women in, in science. And then I have seven short answer questions to you at, at the end <laughs> taken from james lipton who used to do the actor's studio he'd always ask his guests a series of questions at the end so i've okay. modified that yeah something so, to look forward something to. to look forward to so first question i have is um what happened in your youth that drove you to want to be a marine scientist ocean explorer what what was the thing or why, thing. Why isn't everybody? I mean, come on. <clears throat> the ocean is irresistible. And as a kid, I got knocked over by a wave. And it was a little frightening at first, but once I, three years old, I realized that was really fun. And instead of taking me out of the water, my mother watching, seeing this little kid <laughs> roll around in the waves, she saw the big smile on my face and let me stay. Mm. And so I jumped back in and I just have been jumping back in ever since. But what really has captured my imagination, it did when I was a kid and still does, it's life in the ocean. Yeah. And it's taken a long time for the, it to become what should be obvious. And that is that most of life on earth is out there, down there in the ocean. And we're never going to run out of explorations, discoveries, new things, new new ways of looking at the ocean. So many creatures there don't even have names. I mean, they do probably for one another, 
<laughs> but they haven't got a human name yet. <laughs> right, right. What? So that's a great, uh, uh, you know, way to think about how we have spent our energy as a country and mm. a world in exploring space, right. the outer space, we and not are. the inner space. Right. And and what what has driven the difference in that? Do you think? I don't know. People ask me sometimes, where are you from? And I say, Earth. I mean, I've looked around, and of all the planets and other options, I really like this one best. <laughs> <laughs> because in theory, we could go to Mars and do whatever it takes to generate a life support system for a while. It's taken four and a half billion years to transform the rocks and ultimately the rocks and water. And after that, rocks, water, and life <laughs> over a really long time to get to a habitable planet. If we went back a billion years ago, it would not be very nice for us. It's taken a long time right. to get here, and it's taken us a short time to significantly put ourselves at risk because of how much we've really damaged the, the systems that keep us alive. So I, I, I don't have a straight answer to your straight question, why do people long to go high in the sky and why are we, why are we ignoring the best planet that, out there, <laughs> the ocean, I mean Earth, that is an ocean planet. And we, we not only have a bias toward the skies above, but we have a serious bias toward the land. We are, after all, mm. air breathers, terrestrial by nature, but we couldn't survive without the ocean. The ocean makes Earth habitable, right. and the, the living ocean. Yeah, the, you know, we're, we're so concerned about finding the next planet that we can colonize. <laughs> Why not spend the energy resources to Make this Take care a better, of this one. Take yeah. care of this one. Yeah. Because we're doing perversely, it would seem, <laughs> if you're some alien, evil alien trying to undermine the capacity of humans to live on Earth, what would you do? You change the temperature, you would alter the chemistry. Mm -hmm. You try to do as much as you could to eliminate the fabric of life. We're, you know, we're doing all that. We're, we're making the atmosphere of Earth more like the atmosphere of Mars. The atmosphere of Mars is mostly carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. We don't have much. You know, the natural atmosphere of Earth today is just a small bit, just enough to power photosynthesis, which is a good thing. Too much of a good thing, though, means that we get out of kilter and... Yeah as a greenhouse gas along with methane and nitrous oxide, you know, the planet's heading in a much warmer state than what has been comfortable throughout the history of, of our species. Microbes don't mind. <laughs> I mean, some of them will say, Wait, our time has come, it's right. warmer, we like it that way. Right. But for, for us, the, the good thing is knowing what we know with the capacity to do something about it now that we know. You know, I always talk about um, 
that there are no environmental problems but for humans. You know, this, it's a people problem. It's a people problem. <laughs> yeah. it, it absolutely is. I mean, really nature cool. will find yeah. its way and yeah. find the balance. It's Life us that on. get in the way. Yeah. Yeah. The laws of nature are are just are what they are. And we we tend to ignore them at our peril. Right. Yeah. We think we're in charge. <laughs> Until COVID-19 comes along or right. a big fat hurricane or exactly. you name it. Then people start to think about, ah, maybe I am a, ought to be listening to Mother Nature. But the, it doesn't stick, unfortunately, right? It doesn't stick long enough for people to make that permanent change. But the one thing that we are beginning to be mindful of is that we have the capacity. In fact, we are, in fact, changing the nature of nature. The laws of nature will continue to operate, but the basic nature of earth as it was 10,000 years ago or even a thousand years ago even 500 even 50 years ago the, the trajectory since we arrived has been consuming nature and it, as a consequence we put ourselves very much at risk yeah i mean consuming nature all creatures do and we must because we're animals we have to eat something we use water we breathe the air Every action counts, and we, we have an impact. But especially now, 50, 500,000 years ago, we did not know what is now knowable. We can see how we're altering nature and how far, what, what can we get away with and still have a, a functioning planet? Yeah. And we, we didn't know. Even when I was a kid, we had no thought that, anything that humans could do could possibly endanger Santa Claus. I mean, it was unthinkable right. that our actions could cause the melting of polar ice. We just didn't know. Now we have evidence that what we're doing matters. And we know what the problems are. We know what the solutions are. We've got a list of things, including, most importantly, the nature-based solutions to these changes. So the natural world made Earth habitable for us. We've really, you know, consumed so much of those natural systems that we put the basic processes that make Earth favorable out of whack. So let's re restore what we can, hold on, to what currently exists in good shape, old growth forests, natural deserts that are miracles of getting along happily and thriving with very little water. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't just hurry up to irrigate deserts because we're losing answers to some of the big problems in much of the world. How do you get by little beetles and certain kinds of plants that are really, they're miracles in their own way we can learn. It's like a library sitting for, there for us to read and benefit from it. And of course, the tropical forests, the coral reefs, the seagrass meadows, they're so rich and abundant, at least historically, <laughs> here in right. Texas and around the Gulf. And we, uh, we're just beginning to appreciate how important protecting, restoring, protecting what we've got and restoring what we can why that matters not just for, you know, whales and turtles and things, 
really important to us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Why, why did you want to make marine science and ocean exploration and education mm. your career? I mean, and, 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 you know, you have a passion for it, but it's that now moving it into a career mm. that, that step seems to be probably a, inevitable because there, there was of, no choice. You know, coming along at, at the time that I have come along as a witness, mm. privileged to be among the first to use scuba in the 1950s, scuba for science, but scuba is anybody. Yeah. I mean, a scientist, after all, observes carefully and reports honestly what you see. And kids can do it. Kids do it all the time. They, they see things and they tell everybody what they see. And so scientists are like little kids who don't quite grow up. You know, <laughs> oh, look what I found. <laughs> and you want everybody to, to share the view. Right. Except that sometimes in, in current society, science has become more boxed in and have been scientists have been somewhat reluctant to share the view at the and it has cost society the benefits of of knowing a lot that now needs to be known widely yeah and and as a, for me i i couldn't imagine being anything else i as a little kid i i just loved critters I'm a critter person that's science i suppose yeah and read everything I could and took all the classes I could and as a and getting out in wild places as a kid. But the science wasn't enough for you. It was it was the connecting that science with people so they could understand well, what I was that what was there, what was at risk. Maybe in another point in history I might have I might still be hunched over a hot microscope <laughs> or would be locked in a you know straight and narrow scientific ivory tower, if you yeah, will, yeah. in the ocean somewhere. <laughs> Imagine an ivory tower in the ocean. Mm. It could happen. But, I suppose. <laughs> but being a witness to seagrass meadows that I loved yeah. as a kid, yeah. the little seahorses and bubble snails and, I don't know, just this, this jungle of life that was knee-deep in the ocean. And then to watch those beloved places get dredged, just scooped up, dumped on the land so you could have a place to put a parking lot or a you know, landfill. They call it, what is it? <laughs> anyway, it is. Yeah. It, it's, not, it's not a recovery. It's not no. reclamation. Reclamation. It's wrecking, but it's, it's not. It's reclamation with the W. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I go along with that. Yeah. And, and yet, I, when I think what we now know wasn't widely appreciated, you might have, I mean, I saw it as a kid because I knew what was there. And most people just had no idea about the little seahorses and the other creatures that were being completely annihilated. But it's more than compassion for the creatures or empathy for them. It's recognition that we need those places. They hold the planet steady. There are no seagrass meadows or seahorses or elephants or, you know, sharks on the moon or Mars. 
or any other place in the universe. I think it's fair to say that's just true. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. We, Earth is unique. And we There may be life elsewhere, but no elephants. Right. <laughs> it takes right. a long time yeah. over this fine-tuning of life on Earth to get to what we now know as fellow citizens on this complicated network of life. We're a part of it. We think of ourselves often as we don't need nature. We are powerful. We have technology that can achieve whatever. Yeah, but yeah. take a bite out of a chunk of steel. It's not like eating a carrot. No. or having <laughs> not very nutritious or anything else you know yeah we need nature we yeah. need nature now nature needs us to really understand who who we are where we have come from where we could be going one way or the other depending on what we do or fail to do with respect to nature mm-hmm. i mean it seems so obvious now but when i was a kid whaling seemed like oh those heroic whalers they're just out there making a living against the elements brave whalers people weren't thinking so much about the whales yeah fast forward to today and there's empathy uh, an awareness that we're not just talking about pieces of meat or barrels of oil swimming out there these are animals with hearts and minds, families, feelings, faces, structure. There's like other nations almost out there. And sure, we can consume them. We've done a good job of that, almost eliminated them entirely. We certainly had the power to do it, and we still could, but we've chosen not to. And that's that's cause for hope. And, And being a witness to this transition, sitting for four years on the International Whaling Commission, an international organization whose mission it was to to try to regulate the killing of whales. I mean, it didn't mean we need to save the whales. We just need to not take so many that we lose all the whales. Right. <laughs> Even though that was the goal, we came very close to losing. Certainly the northern right whales, there are only 300 plus or minus of them left. And... Mm. You know, we now kill whales not by trying to do it with a harpoon. We kill them by capturing them in garbage that we throw in the ocean or taking their food, like squid. We don't need to eat squid. No. I mean, calamari is okay, nice and chewy and all that, but we don't need to eat squid. But sperm whales are primarily, they grow to be big animals by consuming squid and some small fish, mostly squid. Yeah. They dive down deep where big big concentrations of various kinds of squid exist. Yeah. And, and it, it's not just, there's, there's a, this system that has taken so long to develop. Whales give nutrients back when they eat squid or krill or little fish. And they capture carbon and hold it in place. Ultimately when they die, they take that carbon to the bottom of the ocean. That's right. It's a nutrient cycle. It's a carbon mm. cycle in action. And when they eat whatever they eat and put nutrients back, it powers the phytoplankton. It provides groceries for the zooplankton, 
that includes baby squid and baby everything else of the of many it. things it all like a big puzzle all those pieces have taken a very long time to develop and they're in constant motion it's, it's like th not just three-dimensional chess it's like 500 <laughs> dimensional chess with all of these pieces moving and the chemistry of the ocean shifting and changing but like like in, in a harmonious way yeah it's an orchestra and we don't know who, what the roles are of all of the pieces but we do know that a we have significantly altered it both in terms of the temperature through altering the climate and through taking so much out of the ocean and putting so much junk into the ocean those ancient rhythms have been are still being disrupted and the best thing that we can do is know knowing that to do what we can while understanding we're a part of this we've got to protect more of the ocean and the land nature the places that are still in great shape and restore what we can while finding a place for ourselves you know we got to eat something but we don't have to eat wild animals from the land wild birds songbirds we could soon eat them all up yeah. way we're eating wild animals from the sea to at a level that is not sustainable we've seen crash of everything that we treat as products like menhaden to those that we largely consume like tuna i mean their numbers have gone from where they were in the 1970s yeah 1970 is when NOAA was formed, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, who has a charge among other things. But yes, it's the Weather Service, and yes, it's satellite program and lots of other things, but the fisheries management. But we do need to do a better job of managing ourselves relative to fish. Absolutely. And to respect them alive, not just dead. <laughs> yeah, the hu human behavior aspect of that is right. is critical. It is, it's, and it's managing humans. Managing exactly right. Yeah. I mean, you got it. <laughs> I did really quick. I wanted to pick up on something that you talked about whales and how whales, you know, th three four decades ago started to turn the corner in in terms of numbers coming back. Right. right. That's the good news. That's the good news. We stopped killing them yeah. outright. Right. We still give them a hard time entangled with plastic and on fishing gear and poisoning the ocean and putting stuff in the in the ocean it gets, goes right up the food chain it comes back to us when we eat sea creatures but it goes into the whales they don't have any choice about what to eat right so they're some of them like the little belugas little white whales in the northern waters they they are so loaded with toxins that mm. somebody half jokingly but half seriously more seriously than not that they're like a swimming super fun sites mm -hmm. they have such high concentrations of toxins right do you think we're at, at at that inflection point with sharks though now too are we starting maybe to turn the corner with sharks uh in terms of public awareness um decreasing the number of catch of sharks the finning of sharks yeah what, what do you think I'm counting on the kids yeah. who are yeah. champions for sharks, yeah. unless they are in a family of adults 
who still think it's a good thing to go out and kill a shark and think it's yeah. heroic. You know, the only good shark is a dead shark. Yeah. That's what I heard as a kid. Yeah. And it was considered, well, we're saving the, even Cousteau in the early films that Jacques Cousteau formed. If you go back and look at the records, he, you see him out there, you know, just looking at sharks as the demons of the sea. Mm. And they felt, you know, we've got to kill them. We're doing a good thing. Boy, well, we know watch better. the transition with Cousteau. Yeah. He became absolutely full-on champion for protecting sharks. Right. Peter Benchley, Jaws, he told a really good story, but it was a story. But people believed <laughs> yeah. that idea that sharks can hold a grudge, come after people. That's just nonsense. And after the effect of Jaws so that people were afraid to go to in the bathtub because right. <laughs> he had this water, <laughs> ah, fear. Yeah. But he spent most of the rest of his life just trying right. to apologize and get people to see the reality of sharks. Okay, so if, as the International Monetary Fund commissioned a study about whales and carbon, how much, you know, you get in some areas, the idea of carbon credits for protecting trees. Mm -hmm. The idea of, imagine if you could get carbon credits for protecting whales. Well, how much carbon are we talking about? And put a dollar sign on it. And at the World Economic Forum in 2020, the study came out about whales, carbon-based units, carbon credits, trillion dollars for live whales. Okay, so how much is a dead whale worth? Barrels of oil, even if you could kill them, which right. it's not legal these days, but right. a few nations still do. We're talking hundreds of dollars, not not trillion. a trillion. Yeah. I mean, a hundred dollars or so for, <clears throat> per whale, and more than a million of each whale alive. So, if it works for whales, why not for sharks? Carbon-based units, big ones, and. In the little island country of Palau for tourism, sharks have been valued to be worth at least a million dollars a piece. Not the carbon, although you could add it to it. Crazy people such as I pay to be able to go to Palau because I love sharks. Right. And if we can just get people to love sharks. That's all you need. Whatever. They, they'd be out there Agreed. not eating them, not killing them for fun. They'd be saying, no, I know that shark. He, he lives here, you know? yeah. and he travels, but he always comes back because, in fact, they do. Right, yeah. So we are sitting in the bowels of the Heart Research Institute. For this Gulf is the Me mud room. The mud room, yes. I love it. <laughs> in, the, in the Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies, you are the HRI ambassador for the Gulf, hmm. chair advisory council there from the beginning. So I wanted to know, how did you connect with Ed Hart, our benefactor, or how did Ed Hart connect with you? What was the beginning of that relationship? Well, I think it started at an Explorers Club dinner honoring the millennium to be 2000. And Will Hart, Ed Hart's, one of his sons, was strategically seated next to me because the powers that be thought we'd have things to talk about. <laughs> and I gave Will a copy of this book, Sea Change, 
And just be, uh, 1995, a, right? Came out. It 90? was published in 95, but yeah. we're talking in it was 2000, and Ed, I mean, Will, actually read the book. That meant at least two of us. <laughs> <laughs> but he gave it to his dad after reading it and said, Dad, I think you might be interested in some of the ideas here, which he did. And Ed read it. That made three, at least. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, according to Ed, it was a catalyst for him who was thinking about the family fortune that he wanted to do something with a fair amount of money to give back to Corpus Christi where he and his family lived for so long and he said benefited me I'd like to give back and because he really loved the Gulf of Mexico spent many hours days weeks months in in Mexico and in Cuba mm -hmm. even his email address was mexlalo <laughs> Yeah. And so he, at the time, Bob Ferguson, Robert Ferguson, was the president of of the university here in Corpus Christi, Texas A&M, and had been in discussions with Ed about a major gift to the university. To I mean, it was at Ed's request they were brainstorming, and after reading the book, they got this idea that maybe starting something that would be an, an institute that would be focused on the Gulf of Mexico, tri-national, mm. Cuba, Mexico, and of course, Texas and the rest of the United States, focused on taking care of the Gulf of Mexico, but centered here in Corpus Christi. So I was asked to help join the conversation to say, well, here's what it could be and what, what, what would work, what would be something that would benefit, what, what does not already exist because there are a number of marine labs and there are many universities around right. but Could something be developed that would be, have a unique approach that was closely associated with the university but had a certain amount of autonomy? Okay. And West Tunnel is one of the what the creators <laughs> with his understanding of academia his understanding mm. of research his knowledge of what already exists in terms of gulf marine systems of marine laboratories and universities and and there's so there's like this this big conversation that we did not just keep to ourselves but rather said, let's get some other brains, get a brain trust around. So we put together this council, about 20 individuals, and included Don Walsh, who was the first person mm -hmm. to go to the deepest part of the ocean with the companion, Jacques Picard, mm -hmm. Navy captain with a big base in ocean technology and science and academia, and individuals from Cuba, from Mexico, and from across the Gulf, and even beyond, as long as they had Gulf of Mexico passion and experience. Right. So we got together and brainstormed how to 
how to come up with something that would be worthy of a major gift from Ed and the and the family, the family gift, if you will. And Ed, when asked how did it all get started, he very generously exaggerated by saying, well, she wrote the book and I wrote the check. <laughs> <laughs> really oversimplifies. Well, but, I, you know, I, I had the opportunity to meet Ed a little bit before he passed. But, right. but you know, he, he would say things like that, and they sound very simple, but there is a lot behind it. Like, he would say, make a difference. That's what he said is the only mandate. He didn't say, well, I'm going to give you this great lump of, of money, this, these resources, and here are the things you have to do. Like, here's the cage you have to keep it in. No, he said, make a difference. Unconstrained, unrestricted, but he really respected the results of these deliberations. Yeah. I think Bob Ferguson and Wes Tunnel in particular had the opportunity to work with him and develop the association with the university right. on university property and to develop an academic uh, foundation so that students could be accommodated. So it would be a research facility made available to the university and beyond, but like a real asset for Texas A&M Corpus Christi, yeah. but at the same time have a certain amount of autonomy that that makes it different from so many other places. Well, and and you have, I mean, you've been involved with marine science institutions and yeah, around and, the world and starting and, various marine labs like right. the Moat Marine Lab. I was at the beginning right. of that, for example. So, and, so what makes HRI different? I mean, what did the advisory council <clears throat> say? This is what we need to do. This this is why HRI, the Heart Research Institute, needs to be different. What what was that? One thing, it's focused on the Gulf of Mexico. It's tri-national. It's international. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. like a microcosm for the whole world, where it's not just one country, multiple countries, multiple cultures, languages have to be accommodated in multiple uses. Another aspect, and this, this is in part stems from especially Wes and, and Bob Ferguson, but I appreciate the genius behind it to say, okay, you've got this opportunity. We should endow individuals who come with expertise in this, expertise in that, expertise in this other area, and they have to work together. Mm. And by having them as endowed physicians, they have a certain security, unlike many physicians in academic institutions. You have to kind of fight for the resources. You have to go, and there's nothing wrong with this. And in fact, the endowed physicians encourage going outside to bring resources in to amplify, but at least you have a certain amount of security to to really focus on what you're especially good at, whatever it is. And it, the idea, and it, it, it did, this did reflect what Ed was really pleased about 
he didn't mandate it, but he really was excited about multidisciplinary, mm. cutting across all of what humans do. Social, economic, of course the science, and it's not just physical or biological or chemical, but it's all of those, plus the communication and data management. Just here in this little community of brilliant minds to work together, often, and I've seen this and experienced this <laughs> through most of the academic institutions I've been involved with, they tend to build silos. Yeah. And you don't often cross, you know, except maybe accidentally in the, in the coffee room or having a beer somewhere. This was a deliberate effort to inspire collaboration. Right. And some have now called this the heart model, right. where because it works. It's amazing. Well, you're, you're talking to an economist who's now the executive director, right? And, right? and so putting those different disciplines in the same physical location where right. you mix it up. All the time, offices next to each other, right. not in another building on the other side of campus. Yeah. And the students, similarly, that have come in. It's, it's a culture. Yeah. It's, it's a genuine, you know, this cauldron of, of excitement you know, because people are thinking differently. Yeah. You're not just kept in a box. Oh, I am a physical <clears throat> oceanographer and that's everything. And I don't care about the economists. Who are they anyway? <laughs> or the biologists over there. They, 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 they We're just going to get in my way. Yeah, right? we exactly. Don't, right, right, Instead yeah. of thinking, the Earth is an yeah. ecosystem and humans are, a, a culture is an ecosystem. Yeah. And we're all connected to the natural world. And so being able to bring those elements together and then make it purposeful. And one of the great projects that I particularly love, I mean, Wes and I were talking about this bulletin, 54 <clears throat> fisheries bulletin going back to the 50s about the state of the Gulf of Mexico and with the idea that they could cover all of the issues in a, this much paper, you know, book that thick. Right. And it just, why shouldn't we try to update it 50 years later? Well, it took more than, it was a little later than that, but the idea caught on. And with, again, having a Heart Research Institute be the, the fire starter, engaging scientists all over the country, all over the world, who had an interest in the Gulf of Mexico, bringing them together. And instead of having what we ultimately now know, or in, in this point, many decades after that first report, it, it takes up this much shelf space with a series of volumes. That's right. That's right. And I think just as importantly as distilling it out, here's another point of time where we've got a baseline. You brought people together who work together to pull that information about the Gulf of Mexico into a place. Like here's a, here's a status report. And that's been, again, the model for what Hart has been, been able to do with the Hart base, the Gulf base, and gathering information and being a central headquarters for information and being a... And sharing that. Yeah, and, and, and having it in a way that is accessible. Yes. That's yeah. critical. Yeah. And 
So it's not just a benefit to Gulf of Mexico or Corpus Christi or Texas. It's, it's got waves, not just regionally, not just Cuba and Mexico, the world. That's right. This is a model. That's right. And it benefits everybody. Yeah, I, I th you know, it is built in our DNA from the beginning, from what the Advisory Council wanted to have happen is that this collaboration across disciplines was going to be critically important and that it could have a real impact. Right. I, I think there was... It just gets better. Yes. I mean, it does. Yes, yeah. And having expeditions <clears throat> and meetings, conferences held here that bring the three scientists from the three nations together. Yes, yes. And That's then going so to Mexico, going yeah. to Cuba, yeah. and bringing this cultural attention across these disciplines. It's, it's <laughs> they say, batting above your weight. <laughs> well, it's a small institution relative to some of the big guys out there, but boy, making we, a We must have struck a chord because it's been pretty successful. Right. I mean, it's had it's had an impact. And, and to your point, I you know, we do a lot of great things from from the science. And I'm proud of all of that. But I think the two things that we do really well, and I'm glad that we do train our students in the HRI model to right. think beyond their silos, to right. think about all these other important societal issues. It's a big world out it's there. It's a big world out there. Right. And, you, and you need to know about it. Right. And, the, and the second thing is that international aspect. Right. There is no other institute that is doing this at the level that HRI is. Right. And so I think that's that's critically important. Yeah. So Can't we can't wait to see what's going to happen next. Well, <laughs> this is happening. This is this happening. Is, this is the first Gulfstream, right? Episode one. Episode one. Episode one. So we <laughs> we are at, at time. I uh, thank you for being our first guest on on the Gulfstream podcast. I do have a series of, of questions that I, I want to ask you, short, short questions. Okay. Um, these are adapted from uh, James Lipton, who uh, had the actor's studio um, before he, he died. He was the host of that and would ask a series of questions. I, I added some of my own, <laughs> I own, my own in here. So first question, what was the first impactful interaction with the great outdoors that you remember? Getting knocked over by a wave. Getting knocked over by a wave. <laughs> what sound or noise do you hate? Do I hate? Loud sounds of almost any kind, except thunder. I love thunder. Okay. So <laughs> what sound or noise do you love? How about the, the music, the symphony of whales, fish, mm. um, Shrimp crackling, mm. birds singing, leaves rustling. I don't know. You know, all, all that together. All that. Yeah. Okay. The, the sounds of nature, what and, and the laughter of kids. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. What is your least favorite word? My least least favorite word. Hmm. 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 <laughs> uh, despair. Despair. What is your favorite word? Hope. What excites you about the future? Hope. <laughs> no. What excites me about the future is 
knowing that not only have we changed over the over the ages that humans have been around in response to the needs that arise but that we can change in order to survive. We've never had a better chance than we've got right now. I think that this is the sweet spot when the magnitude of what we've learned from our past experience and our relationship to nature, we know what to do. We're right on the edge. Will we, can we wake up in time and do it? Because we've got the best chance we will ever have to make peace, not only with nature, but therefore among ourselves. We'll never do it if we don't make peace with nature. Last question. What other profession would you rather be in than the one you're in currently? <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, I just love what I do. I can't imagine doing anything else. Fair enough. I couldn't imagine you in any other profession either. Sylvia Ariel, thank you for joining us on the Gulf Stream. Thank you. We do this, we do this, then we can do the squid. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Gulf Stream. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help make a difference in the Gulf by contributing to the Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies research and efforts to create healthier coastal and marine ecosystems. Visit heartresearch.org. That's H-A-R-T-E research.org for more information. Please note, the views and opinions expressed by guests of the Gulf Stream do not necessarily reflect the views of the Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies or Texas A&M University Corpus Christi. It is our mission to be an honest broker, providing only science-based solutions to Gulf of Mexico problems and other environmental issues. This podcast is intended to provide our guests with a safe and open forum for them to express themselves freely.